1: And welcome to Pod Save the UK. I'm Coco Khan and Nish is still away. He's filming. He'll be back next week. But it gives me an opportunity to make a new friend. So uh, here to help me out this week is political commentator, journalist and internet big name on campus. It's Femi Oluwole. (laughs) Hello. You may be more familiar with him, listeners, as uh, Femi, at Femi underscore, sorry, Um, But hi, welcome to the show.
2: (laughs) Hi Coco. Yeah, um, people might know me as Femi underscore sorry. Uh, On the BBC they actually called me Femi sorry because they thought that was my actual last name.
1: (laughs) But I do have to ask you, why are you Femi sorry? Uh,
2: Because I tend to just say logical things and that can rub people the wrong way. So I figured the safest thing to do is to have an inbuilt apology to everything that I say. It saves on apology videos.
1: I'll be honest, I think the fact that it's already in the hashtag kind of undermines the feeling of apology. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I'm not
2: actually sorry. None of these yeah. people are ever actually exactly, sorry.
0: Exactly.
1: <laughs> I honestly, I was saying to the producers, I thought it was because it was more like a sort of sassy, it's Britney, bitch. It's Femi. Sorry. Sorry yeah. if you can't handle the heat. Sorry if you can't take it. You know what I mean? I, I'm not that cool. <laughs> <laughs> oh Well, look, um, welcome to the show. We're in the middle of party conference season. I actually mentioned in last week's episode that I'd never been to one before. And I'm with a veteran mm. of party conferences right now. Um, <laughs> how's, your, how's your Conservative Party Conference been? Yeah, uh,
2: yeah, veteran. I've done in like six of these things. I hate them. Um, it's just like being around the actual worst people in the country and knowing that all, they've all just gathered together in one concentration, it's uh, painful. This year was interesting because they, they know they're going to lose. And so it's just, there's that somber element, but also this like cats and rats in a bag sort of element of, can we climb over each other to become the new leader?
1: Well, I mean, we've actually got a, a clip of your your time, um, just making things very uncomfortable for a number mm. of conservative ministers.
2: Uh, morning, sir. No, I, I, was wa- I'm not talking. I was wondering if I'm I could not, get just I'm not, I'm not what talking. are the core values of the Conservative I'm Party, not I'm not sir? Talking. Patel, pleasure to meet you. Uh, what would you say are the core values of the Conservative Party? Where are you from? Uh, my name's Pemmy. I'm, I'm, I'm a journalist online. That's
0: very nice. I'm watching
2: What would you say are the core values of the Conservative oh, Party? Um, what would you say are the core values of the Conservative Party? Uh, I'm not doing
3: interviews right now, thank you, i literally just, just going in here. Just the core values. you speak to...
2: I'm a spade knock. Pleasure to meet you. Hi. Um, a couple, couple of months ago you said that the Brexit has been traumatic for the car industry. Is that what people voted for in, in places like Sunderland? Have any of the trade deals that you've negotiated made up for the loss of Brexit? You're making jokes about poo. I'm talking about people of the UK.
1: That's all she had to say to you, is you're stepping in shit. Yeah. So, I mean, it looks like you're running something of a, um, I think it's fair to say, guerrilla operation mm-hmm. there. Like, yes. what's your tactics? How do you find them?
2: So with all these uh, conferences, there's always going to be an entrance that they go in and out of. And mm-hmm. it's all, always one or two. And so you basically just walk back and forth between the two and eventually you'll catch them.
1: Bit like Pokemon Go, isn't yeah. it? You've
2: got to catch them all. I, I love, um, I, love it's, I feel like I'm hunting Tory MPs. <laughs> <Go on. laughs> it's, it's genuinely my favourite thing to do. I'm just stood there with police around me, just like scanning the crowd for the ones that want to capture.
1: Who did come and speak to you? Who was friendly? Who was not avoiding you?
2: The only person that really spoke to me properly was Brendan Clark Smith. Like he caught eyes with me and it was like, oh, do you want to do this? Cool. So he's the MP for Bassett Law and he's quite aggressive online. Let's put it that right, way.
0: Right. Okay. Um,
2: and so he had he already has a reputation, but he decided to be civil with me. And uh I think he regretted that quite quickly because I asked him a very simple question. What would you say are the the core values of the Conservative Party? He said freedom. And so I pointed out that in his policing act, he's put noise limits on protest. And does that count as freedom? He said, well, you've got to trust the police to make judgments on these things. And so I said, well, the Metropolitan Police was recently found to be institutionally racist, homophobic and sexist. So should they be trusted with our democratic freedoms and expression? And he said, you've got to trust the police. Right. So uh, the guy the one politician that decided to actually talk to me ended up telling a black person to trust racist police.
1: That's not not great, is it? <laughs> yes. We shouldn't have done the Pokemon Go conversation because literally when, when you were telling me the story, I could just imagine you like, oh, the cap is being turned backwards. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I could feel the like fire emojis on the side of the screen. <laughs> like, but you won, right? Uh,
2: I I was enjoying it. I was really enjoying it. Um because I, I know how much these people are scared of me. Um, like uh, Robert Jenrick was the was the worst one because he was, uh, he's the guy that's um he helped a Tory donor avoid paying forty five million pounds to a local council, um and admitted that those actions were unlawful because they that donor then paid twelve thousand pounds to the Tory party. After he did that. So, full on corruption. And so, he just refused to talk to me and called me a liar and basically accused me of defamation.
1: So, just before we started recording this, we were all hunkered down at the pub uh, watching Rishi Sunak's big conference speech. Um, I wouldn't recommend that experience to anyone. I think there's other ways to enjoy the pub. But we will get to our findings on that in a moment. First, though, I do want to tell you about the trainer brand, Carryuma. I'm wearing them. They're a great sponsor of our show. And uh, yeah, they made really cool trainers and as it happens crooked media are they're doing a collaboration it's their second collaboration with the trainer brand it's the Carrie humor and love it or leave it collab there's something about autumn isn't there that makes you want to get new shoes so why not get ones made with organic cotton canvas natural rubber cork and recycled plastics it doesn't hurt that they have tiny surfing dogs on them It's very cute. They come in pink and black and feature a whimsical scene that will absolutely put some pep in your step, plus cariuma plants two trees in the Brazilian rainforest for every pair purchased. So if you're interested in a brand new pair of cool kicks, you can find them at www.crooked.com forward slash store. So it's been an eventful few days in Manchester for the Tory party faithful. We've seen Liz Truss bizarrely being fated like a conquering hero. We saw an elected Tory official being ejected for heckling Suella Braverman. And we saw a site we'll never be able to scrub from our memories. Uh, and that was pretty Patel and Nigel Farage dancing, maybe looking a bit pissed up, to I Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. If you haven't seen it, just count your lucky stars. It will haunt you in your dreams. Um, but above all of that, the future of their HS2 High speed rail project was hanging over proceedings like a dark cloud. Rishi Sunak finally put everyone out of their misery by officially announcing, as had already been widely reported, that he was cancelling the Birmingham to Manchester leg of the UK's biggest infrastructure project for a generation. Here he is making his leader speech to the Conservative Party conference just shortly before we started recording.
2: HS2 is the ultimate example of the old consensus. The result is a project whose costs have more than doubled, which has been repeatedly delayed, and it is not scheduled to reach here in Manchester for almost two decades, and for which the economic case has massively been weakened with the changes to business travel post-Covid. I say to those who backed the project in the first place, the facts have changed. And the right thing to do when the facts change is to have the courage to change direction.
1: So what's your take on this, Femi? Do you think it's leaving him looking bold and brave or or actually quite weak for letting this get out of hand.
2: Yeah, he's talking about the idea that the government has failed to control the spending, control the budget that the the costs have ballooned. It's almost as if somebody who was chancellor had some responsibility for this kind of thing. I don't know. That guy. Um Rishi Sunak literally bragged about defunding poor areas. They don't care about regional inequality. And so to then um say all right, to hell with the the, the northern leg. We've got the high speed rail between Birmingham and and London we don't really care about giving that same thing to the to the north that's just it just screams betrayal and i think the issue is about the reset because yes where we are right now the idea of saying we're going to prioritize the east west travel they're going to prioritize improving rail in general in the north i think that's a good idea i think that's more important than the high speed element of it but you've already spent $27 billion on the bottom leg. So that money could have been spent on a high-speed rail in the north, as well as improving the general rail up north. So again, it's that prioritization of the south, which is the whole problem with how this has gone.
1: Well, I mean, he says that the $36 billion, I think it is roughly, that there's going to be saved from cancelling this, can kind of speed up. Other transport in the north where it is desperately needed. But I think it's sort of fair to say, well, how do we know you're going to fulfill on that project given that you haven't fulfilled on this project?
2: Yeah, they've been in power for 13, 14 years. They're starting and they're making this promise pretty much before just before they leave office. I mean, we're talking about an election probably May, maybe even in the winter, and now he's announcing a huge project which will take years. The idea that we can trust that is just doesn't make any sense. Not to mention, they could have done this. Years ago. Mm. They could have started with the North. They could have started with, with improving rail infrastructure in the North. They chose not to. And now here we are in the final days of, the, of this um, of this government. And they're not saying, oh, no, we do, we, do, we do actually care about the North.
1: Bullshit. Um, away from HS2, what did you think about the speech in general? You know, um, he brought his wife out. That seemed like mm. a step <laughs> change. As you'd expect, there's been a lot about Rishi in the media. About who he is what he likes, what he doesn't like, what motivates him, and so forth. Now, some of it is accurate. I'm afraid he does love a good rom-com. The (laughs) cheesier, the better, even. Uh, And some of it is not so true. So you'll be relieved to hear that episodes of Emily in Paris are not informing his outlook on the EU. I guess because he seems like he's designed by AI, he's like trying to humanise himself a little bit more. Do you think it was effective?
2: I think, as you said, it's it's designed to humanise him. It's because he knows that the Conservative Party's brand is basically in the toilet, that they're not popular, they're not going to win. He's gone for this more presidential style uh, approach where it's all about him. And I find it weird that he'd go for the cult of personality uh, approach when he doesn't have one. (laughs) But he's also lying to us at the same time. Like he's saying, he said things like, "We've grown faster than Germany and France because of Brexit," even though his own chancellor has said we would have better growth if we were in the single market. He knows. I mean, it is
1: punchy, isn't it, for him to be like, "Choose change, choose me." Like it's just crazy. (laughs) Like we, we can all see through that. But the question is, is it effective to to their core voters?
2: I, I don't think so. I mean, b- by definition, he is an unelected prime minister. He wasn't the leader of the party at the last election. His his The members of the Conservative Party rejected him last summer. He does not have popularity anywhere. So for him to act like, um, go down the cult of personality route when he's not popular, doesn't make any sense to me.
1: Yeah, it was fascinating that he brought his wife out just because I, I feel that he's doing this uh, family values yeah. shtick. Um, and... Is in you know? I think he's really counting on us all forgetting about the whole non-dom status mm-hmm. thing that happened, which was not that long ago. And
2: the Infosys thing—the fact that the fact that that uh, his wife's company will benefit significantly from a trade deal with India—and that's what he's pushing for.
1: So away from Rishi Sunak's big speech, there's been no shortage of ministers grandstanding over the last few days, in the hope of grabbing some headlines. None more so than our old favourite friend Suella Braverman. Um, <laughs> Just for clarity, we are being sarcastic. She is our highest ranking villain uh, of the week. I um, love her. <laughs> oh, is it her warm personality? Yeah, and
2: it's, it's the soullessness that really captures
1: me. Suella <laughs> uh, made a speech clearly intended to cement her position as a standard bearer of the conservative right. Here she is.
2: The wind of change that carried my own parents across the globe in the 20th century was a mere gust compared to the hurricane that is coming.
1: So it didn't go down a storm with everyone. Storm. W-
2: <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
0: um,
1: one elected conservative was ejected for voicing his discontent. While there are reports of fury from senior Tory MPs who are accusing the cabinet secretary of sowing deep divisions within the party. I mean, I agree with the statement that she is doing that, but also I'm like, guys, where have you been? <laughs> this mm. has been going on for so long. I mean, is there such thing as a moderate Tory anymore?
2: No, that th- that died when they started kicking out Tories who were w- unwilling to go with a No Deal Brexit. You have to toe the party line of extremism otherwise you're out and literally we had a uh, an elected Tory uh, official saying there's no such thing as gender ideology with, with in response to some of the transphobic stuff that uh, so- soella was saying and they got kicked out immediately they like pounced on him it was genuinely pretty uh,
1: 1930s-ish mm. and the like lurch to the right I think as well something that I find really galling about it is it's not even original you know it's uh it's Taking so many plays out of the kind of Trump playbooks. For example, she was talking about luxury beliefs this time Mm. around. You know, so I tried to look into luxury beliefs. What does that even mean? Of course, it's a it's it's come from a US commentator. I'm not saying there aren't parallels, but it is incredible how this uh, Conservative Party keeps trying to talk about British values, British values, but directly borrows the language from a different. Uh, community, a different nation, a different world, really.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, the, it, the, when she was talking about luxury beliefs, that was the hypocrisy on that was off the charts because everything this government has done has made people poorer and they've done it in the name of their beliefs. It was, the whole idea was that the left can afford to have these noble values yeah. and it's the poor people that pay for them. No, you've been making people poorer because of your belief in capitalism, your belief in Brexit, your belief in kicking out foreigners. All these things have made us poorer. You're the ones having the luxury
1: beliefs. Well, it's interesting because the guy who um, originated that phrase luxury beliefs, this writer Rob Henderson, what he was trying to say was that people that have lots of money, they sort of say things they say these noble things because it doesn't really affect them Mm -hmm. and actually truthfully they don't really believe it they might sort of talk about state schools are great but they'll send their kids to a different place Mm. i don't actually think there's like there is some truth in that and i think we could all recognize a bit of that but i think broadly speaking people that are wealthy nothing affects them anyway do you know what i mean there's loads of wealthy people that are like for king and country and family values too and actually things don't really affect them. So I think it's more wealthy people aren't affected by reality is the, the real kind of truth there. But they just want to focus on the kind of liberal, progressive, wealthy yeah, person, exactly.
2: isn't it? It's like, it's like how they talk about lefty lawyers as if as if they don't rely on lawyers for their corporate gains. Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> um, so papers reported that the speech was signed off by Number 10 with one government source saying that uh, Miss Braverman's words were approved line by line. Particularly interesting given that Rishi's speech is all about like a it being a great place for people of colour. But Suella has recently been talking about how, you know, multiculturalism has failed. So which one is it? What line are they going to go for?
2: Yeah, it's a weird cognitive dissonance between Suella Braveman saying that multiculturalism has failed and Rishi Sunak saying that we're such a diverse country because of, look at all the cabinet members of ethnic minorities. I think that's because they have to pretend to not be racist, but at the same time keep being racist. <laughs> Um, like they, no, their own race report shows that uh, it's much harder to get a job and get up when you're applying for a job and send, you have to send more applications if you have a black sounding name or an Asian sounding name but they've done nothing to fix that nothing about anonymous CVs nothing about improving education to highlight the contributions of ethnic minorities in the UK
1: Well it definitely seems to be their like favourite tactic is to it's the, it's the straw man thing isn't it so yeah. they they set up a policy that no one's proposing uh, they set up a, a some sort of anxiety in society that actually doesn't really exist and then they tell everyone that they're the hero Mm -hmm. and they're going to sort it out or how they'd scrap it or what they would do. Um, The one that I've been thinking loads about is this meat tax. What is that about? uh, You know, Cabinet Minister Claire Coutinho was pulled up by Sophie Ridge on Sky News for saying that the Tories were going to stop Labour's implementation of a meat tax. Nobody's actually talking about that. And you know what we were saying earlier about all these plays from the Trump playbook. Mm-hmm. You know, that whole thing about the progressives hate meat and want to steal your burgers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was from a, a 2019 CPAC speech that someone oh. had and it, it caused a bit of an uproar. I think the line was something like, oh, you know, these progressives, they want to take your hamburgers, they want to take your pickup trucks. It's what Stalin would have wanted. And actually, everybody knows Stalin loved burgers. <laughs> <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Anyway, the next conference is Labour. Their party conference conference, gets underway in Liverpool at the weekend with the SNP meeting in Aberdeen four days later. The mood of those gatherings is likely to depend on what happens in the Glasgow constituency of Rutherglen and Hamilton West over the next couple of days. Voters go to the polls on Thursday with the result declared on Friday in what is being billed as a litmus test for the shifting dynamics of Scottish politics. It's being seen as a straight shootout between Labour and the SNP with what happens likely to be a sign of things to come in a general election. For the SNP, it's the most significant electoral test First Minister Hamza Yousaf has faced as leader. So coming up next, it's been a year since the people of Northern Ireland had any sort of functioning devolved government. We'll look at whether a breakthrough is on the way with the SDALP's Matthew O'Toole, leader of the opposition
0: at Stormont. The New York Times calls BritBox the best of British telly. Stream acclaimed original series, including Payback, starring Peter Mullen, Stonehouse, starring Matthew McFadden, and Archie, the man who became Cary Grant, starring Jason Isaacs. Plus, discover powerful new series, like Three Little Birds and the return of BAFTA-winning drama Time, starring Bella Ramsey, Tamara Lawrence, and Jodie Whittaker. Stream the best of British TV, only on BritBox. Start a free trial at BritBox.com.
1: So all the fun of party conferences means the UK Parliament has to shut up shop for the best part of a month. But if that sounds like a long time, take a look at Northern Ireland. It's been without a functioning government For over 18 months, in February 2022, Northern Ireland's First Minister Paul Given resigned in protest to Boris Johnson's Brexit deal, which required checks on goods entering Northern Ireland from Great Britain. Since then, Given's Democratic Unionist Party has refused to go back into power sharing, which is Northern Ireland's system of government established under the Good Friday Agreement. Ministers were able to carry on as caretakers until the end of October last year, but since then, it's been civil servants managing day-to-day government affairs, but obviously with very limited powers. So back in March, Rishi Sunak agreed a new deal with the EU on Northern Ireland, known as the Windsor Framework. That reduces the amount of checks on goods coming from Britain. The Windsor Framework came into effect on Sunday. But there's still no functioning government in Belfast. So what happens now? To help us answer that, we're joined by Matthew O'Toole, Social and Democratic Labour Party member of the Legislative Assembly for South Belfast and official leader of the opposition in Stormont. Thank you for joining us, Matthew. And you're in Stormont right now, right?
3: I am. Hi, Coco. Hi, Femi. I'm in Stormont, which, as you say, has not been functioning for 18 months. It feels a bit at times a kind of movie set where uh, empty corridors um, sort of echo with the sound of nothing happening very much. It's um, depressing and a bit uh, creepy, but hopefully at some point soon we will have a government and a legislature again.
1: I do want to talk to you about this situation because it is just bananas from where I'm sitting. But before we get into it, I just want to hear a little bit more about you and your background. So before you became a politician, you were a civil servant in London. Being a Brexit spokesperson for the Treasury at one point, I understand. I mean, that must give you quite the vantage point on Brexit.
3: Brexit is kind of part of the reason I'm doing what I'm doing now. So I was um, a civil servant for many years. I was uh, I started my career as a journalist and then I became a, a civil servant at the, a couple of different places. The Treasury for a number of years. And then whenever Brexit itself happened, I, I was spokesperson at the... I'm um, at number 10. in fact, I was I was at number 10 on the night of, of, of the vote itself. Um, and I mean, I suppose part of why I ended up getting involved in politics back in Northern Ireland, having been in London for a long time, was the sense that what Brexit meant was something deeply destabilizing and um, shocking for Northern Ireland, the island of Ireland, and the Good Friday Agreement settlement. And you know, tragically, it's proven to be uh, exactly that. See, FEMI's done a lot of campaigning on this over the last number of years, but it was, it was clear to me, even when I was a civil servant, before the vote took place, that this was going to destabilise the kind of basis on which we'd done the Good Friday Agreement, which was um, predicated on the UK and Ireland, both being members of the European Union, which allowed for a kind of softening of this big binary division we have here in Northern Ireland between, you know, Britishness, Irishness, the sovereignty question should we be in the uk should we be in the united ireland that was slightly made more manageable uh, and the identity thing was made a little bit less um uh, kind of binary uh, in the context of the eu and i felt that um and lots of people felt but i particularly from the position i was in inside number 10 at the time as a as a civil mm. servant felt this was going to be really difficult and that's so it proved to be the case and i ended up kind of As it were, sort of leaving my civil service career, I worked for a time in the private sector and then very proud to be a representative of of the SDLP, the Social Democratic and Labour Party. We're a proud sister party of UK Labour, um, and that's a core part of our identity. We believe in social justice. We believe in constitutional change, bringing about a new Ireland, i.e. one without a border in it, on the basis of not just mutual respect, but true and deep reconciliation of all the people and traditions on the island uh, of Ireland Brexit really is the reason I'm in this job in the first place so um, I have Brexit to thank for that <laughs> <laughs>
1: thanks I guess or blame,
3: <laughs> or blame or blame who knows yeah. it's, it's weird exactly. I,
1: I think there's like probably nothing worse in terms of just the maddening nature of knowing something bad is going to happen, saying something bad is going to happen. The thing still happens and it's really bad. Like that must, I mean, Femi, I know you've got experience. You can commune in this maddening situation. I mean, Matthew, do you think it's what's happening right now is over and above what what even your worst nightmares were?
3: Well, it probably is in the sense that, well, yeah, we're basically seven and a bit years on from the Brexit vote in June 2016. Of that seven years, we've had, I think... More than half, there hasn't been a devolved government in Northern Ireland. Mm. Um, Now, there have been other reasons uh, at different times that have contributed to the fact that we haven't had devolved government. And as you said at the start, Coco, we have a particular type of devolved government. It's for the political nerds, and quite a few political nerds listen to this pod. um, uh, It's called consociationalism, power sharing. It's because we have a divided society and a very difficult history that we have to have a form of mandatory coalition. um, And that hasn't functioned for more than half of the time since the Brexit vote happened. I think that's totally linked to Brexit because I think
0: mm.
3: ultimately what it did is that it reintroduced the question of binaries and borders and zero-sum identity questions that just don't work in a place like this. And uh, and it, ma- it it forced those dilemmas back on us. And it's made the last seven years uh, at a devolved level and politics here is always difficult and complicated. Uh, it's made it very, very difficult. Very difficult, and it's a big part of the reason we don't have a government now. Eighteen months ago, the DUP pulled out their ministers uh, over the consequences of a hard Brexit, which they championed. Yeah. They were the, among the loudest and most enthusiastic advocates for. And one of the consequences was well, that we was that we needed some kind of special arrangements for Northern Ireland and the island of Ireland because we're on a different landmass to the rest of the UK. We have a whole set of um, uh, particular issues on our land border. Um, it's not like any other land border. Like for a whole number of for a whole range of historical reasons. Um, uh, so we were going to need a particular set of arrangements. The outworking of that have, has not been to the liking of parts of the DUP's base. And um, they don't like the fact that there are checks between Britain and Northern Ireland. I don't particularly like it either. I'd rather they didn't happen. I'd rather Brexit hadn't happened in the first place. This is obviously one of many consequences mm. of it. And all the consequences are ones that we didn't want. And we're now living with the political uh, reality of it. So ultimately, um, we have to get on with it. And we have to, as it were, make the best of it.
1: We've had a, uh, a voice note in from one of our listeners that I'd like to, to play to you now. Joe, who got in touch from Northern Ireland. I work as a public servant. And I can say with upsetting,
3: sort of grim determination that it is not working at the moment, or the DUP determines that it is not going to work for them. And thus, we still don't have a government. We still don't get policy um, discussed. Our NHS is enough Worse state than England. Can you believe it? It's, it's, it is it's, collapsing. It is not on the point of
1: collapse. It is not about to. We're not at a precipice. We've crossed over and plunged to our deaths. And the DUP are, uh, are the ones beh- beside us saying that this is, this is the right idea. So, Matthew, um, just for our listeners who may not be familiar about what it looks like for civil servants to be running a nation, you know, what can't be done?
3: Well, what can't be done is really anything significant. So that could be um, anything where there isn't a clear policy direction from a previous minister. Uh, There can't be any decision made on it. But even beyond that, there's obviously civil servants don't want to take any any decision that's going to put them or their department at legal risk. So they have to be inherently cautious. Uh, They can't, for example, agree a new, uh, a more ambitious pay deal for healthcare workers in Northern Ireland who are paid not just worse than they're not keeping up with parity in terms of Britain, but they're also uh, underpaid in relation to um, people, uh, healthcare staff in the Republic of Ireland. And obviously, because of our proximity, we just we lose a huge amount of staff and over the border, uh, because pay is better. And you can't, mm. so civil servants can't, for example, strike a multi-year budget that would cover pay. They can't do workforce planning. They can't say, well, we're going to need this number of GPs, surgeons, midwives, physios, whatever, over the course of the next three years in different health trusts in Northern Ireland. That kind of thing is, a. it has to be ultimately signed off uh, by a minister because it'll require a budget to be assigned to it. And that's part of the reason why, as your caller accurately says, our health service is now not just on the brink of collapse, it is virtually collapsed already because we haven't been able to make those decisions and, they, and it becomes worse week by week. And the truth is that people like me will say we need to get an executive and assembly back and clearly we're going to be in opposition, but we need to have our institutions back in order to take these decisions in order to start to do something about the health service. So we are at this moment where people are becoming hopeless. Mm. Uh, they're, they've moved kind of beyond anger into beyond anger, beyond cynicism into kind of this indifference uh, about devolved politics. That's a really... Dangerous uh, 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 place to be for any democracy, and it's and it, it is a product of of the DUP's um, cynicism. their uh, you know, their willingness to to put narrow political advantage ahead of um, the, the the public's well being. It is also it's worth saying, you know, the DUP obviously exists. They would say to protect the constitutional status quo, i.e., Northern Ireland's place in the United Kingdom. And um, the truth is that they are making the status quo completely miserable a mess which just seems to me as someone who doesn't share their preference constitutionally completely and utterly insane to be in a position where you make the thing that you say you want is for the status quo to be maintained northern ireland to stay as it is inside the uk but you're making the status quo absolutely terrible and uh, and it's depressing to have to come on a program like this as i do local programs and talk about how terrible things are because even though I'm an opposition politician, you want to be able to talk not just about how bad things are, but about what your ideas are to improve them. That's kind of what politics should be about. Yes, in our case, as an opposition, holding a government to account if we had a government. I think I'm the only leader in the opposition in the the world who wants to set up a government rather than bring one down. But you need to have one in the first place so the decisions can be made and and you can give people some sense that there's a direction, even if things aren't going to be, you know, improved overnight.
1: I was looking at some of the crises that are, are being faced. Uh, one that springs to mind that you know a lot more about than certainly I do is this uh, situation with Loch Ness, the largest lake in both yeah. the UK and the island of Ireland. You tried to get the Assembly to recall urgently to kind of address this problem. So my first question for you is, uh, can you explain to our listeners what's going on? Well,
3: you're totally right about Loch Ness, Coco. It is the biggest um, It's the biggest inland body of water in the UK or Ireland. It's one of the biggest lakes Um, uh, in Western Europe, but it's also a huge natural resource and it is dying in front of us. Unfortunately, it's become a bit of a metaphor for the state of our politics because uh, it it has been effectively poisoned. What's happened is that a combination of things have effectively poisoned the lake. Uh, Number one, uh, very large amounts of uh, agricultural waste, largely from things like slurry being used and run off into our waterways. And because it's a huge lake right in the middle of this region, uh, lots of rivers flow into it. So the, whenever there's a, whenever there's a you know, heavy rainfall, for example, lots of the slurry, the agricultural waste will run off into the waterways. We also haven't invested enough in our own wastewater system, as uh, obviously a, a, is a particular issue at the minute as well in terms of um, water utilities in the south of England. But we haven't invested enough on that.
1: But Matthew, like as I understand it, that lake is forty percent of all of Northern Ireland's drinking water. That is terrifying. Bad enough to swim in it, but not to the, the drinking yeah. impact. I mean, are there health outcomes here as well?
3: Well, we're still kind of waiting to find out what the impacts are. They're still testing. So, I mean, I should say to be clear, Northern Ireland Water say absolutely that there's no risk to drinking water, but obviously we want to continue to interrogate that and make sure that the water is tested as thoroughly as possible it's also there's also lots of long-standing commercial fishing including uh, great delicacies like Loch Ness eels are some of the best eels if you're either of you are a fan of jellied eel over <laughs> down the East End It's uh, um, not something I ever enjoyed when I was in London but um, <laughs> lots of the eel caught, eaten all over Europe comes from Loch but there's just this ecological crisis which we've allowed to happen in part through bad governance and bad decision we tried to recall the assembly as you said Cuckoo. unfortunately we weren't able to get the requisite number of signatures I mean this is insane that we have our literally our largest natural resource as you say something that gives us 40% of our drinking water and our devolved legislature isn't even meeting to discuss it, let alone agree an action plan. It is shocking and disgusting, bluntly.
1: So what do you think the chances of a, a, revo- a resolution sorry, to this political deadlock? Anytime soon, what do you think is going to happen?
3: Well, what's happening at the minute is the I mean, the reason the DUP gave for collapsing the institutions last year was that they didn't like they, was that the, this, what was then called the protocol, has now since it's been updated called the Windsor Framework. They felt that the um, the arrangements which require checks, the DUP have said they didn't like those arrangements, they wanted them to be eased. The Sunak government. Um, has done very little worthwhile in my view overall. One thing that it did do that was constructive was engage more seriously with the EU. They got this deal the Windsor Framework which is slightly smooth some of how it's operated. The DUP still refuses to go back in. They are now having a private, endless seemingly dialogue with the British government which is by by itself pretty undemocratic because the rest of us, all the other parties in Northern Ireland uh, or the Irish government are involved in that conversation. We await the DUP basically telling us, it's like waiting for Gatto telling us when, how they're going to go back in. If they don't, they're going to have to explain to people why not. We worry that what they, who they're worried about are not actually the businesses of Northern Ireland, who many of whom are want to take advantage of this these arrangements, the Windsor Framework. The people they're worried about are actually extremists and hardliners, including the kinds of people who appear at rallies with masks over their face. Um, uh, and that's a real problem. The DUP have it in their power. They could go back in tomorrow. Uh, I hope at some point in the next few weeks they're going to Um, they are going to start to move uh, towards coming back in. But if they don't, big questions are going to be asked about the future of this place. So
2: just so we're clear on what the Windsor framework is, it was supposed to take over from the Northern Ireland Protocol, which was the part of the Brexit deal that Boris Johnson negotiated, which was supposed to somehow deal with that incompatibility between Northern Ireland being part of the UK, but also with an open border with the Republic of Ireland. And how do you do that if the UK is no longer in the EU with the free flow of goods, etc. And the Northern Ireland um, Protocol created that border on the Irish Sea. And the Windsor framework was supposed to somehow Make that easier, and that came into force on Sunday. What's changed with the Windsor Framework? Is it better? Do you think it's more likely to bring the DUP back to the table and back to Stormont?
3: Um, you summarise it very well there, Femi. You've obviously been you've been uh, communicating <laughs> on Brexit for some time, and you're slightly <laughs> pithier than I was in terms of trying to explain it. It's hard not to get caught caught up in the weeds. The, the Windsor Framework is a helpful step forward in terms of making it a little bit smoother. So some of the processes for, for example, the big supermarkets. Um, the retailers who are, you know, they're able to be designated trusted traders. They're able to bring their goods into Northern Ireland slightly more straightforwardly than they would have been under the initial version of the protocol. That's welcome. We we were always keen that um, something like that would be worked out. There's uh, other areas where there's slightly simplified paperwork. So all that's positive and helpful. But I guess the ultimate question Femi, is not really whether, um, you know, what the precise detail of the easements are in terms of the... The Windsor framework, important though they are, they're very important for businesses who have to deal with the bureaucracy and also businesses who, by the way, want to take advantage of the economic opportunity, which is vast for Northern Ireland um, in terms of having that untrammeled access into both markets. And the the, the question is really whether it's actually was ever about the, or the extent to which it really was about the Windsor framework or the protocol for hardline unionism in the DUP. It may be that there are other things happening in Northern Ireland society more generally, uh, that they have difficulty with and that makes it harder for them to be honest with themselves and their supporters that it's 2023, not 1953. Mm-hmm. This society is not going to be just the way that it was, the way that they, it might've been 50 or 70 or a hundred years ago. It's different now. And if they want it to, if they, if they want to have a fighting chance of keeping it sort of in the UK, bluntly, they need to uh, understand that, you know, they can't, turn back time, they can adjust themselves and govern this place um, on the basis of uh, kind of uh, common sense, uh, And as it is now in 2023. That's really the big question. It's not, it, not really whether the precise bureaucracy is a bit smoother or not. That is important. I'm glad it's happened and it was necessary, but it's really about a more fundamental question, I think, for the DUP about whether they're willing to be courageous and govern this place as it is now.
1: What is something that is like solutions-based that people listening to this can do to support everyone coming back to the table, get this lake sorted out and get some healthcare workers paid? Like, what's some things that we can be doing?
3: I think they can join the SDLT. They won't be well (laughs) as supporters in Britain. And we are like, there. are I mean, I I think, um, and lots of people do. I did, obviously, whenever I was um, still in London, chime with our values the values which are center-left pro-european um and about reconciliation but um what can people do practically in britain i I think being engaged you guys having this discussion on this podcast is important i will give you a couple of examples of how um different it is i mean i spend a lot of my occasionally talk to london-based media as part of my day job but i spend a lot less time talking to london-based media than i did In the two or three years after I left number 10, when I was a kind of occasional commentator talking head about the whole Brexit process, the whole UK wide Brexit process being there's a great way to um, remove yourself from um, UK media attention is to become uh, a politician (laughs) within Ireland, to be quite honest, because, you know, our our concerns, what matters over here are they were for a few years at the centre of the Brexit process, but they're much less. Um, uh, not that was a very brief period, and they th- th- we're just not uh, ever going to be front and center of the broader UK debate. And in some ways, that's understandable. We are a we have a you know a distinct politics, and we're a relatively small uh, region. But it is important that um, that the people aren't completely ignorant and indifferent to what's happening here. I mean, I would say historically, part of the challenge uh, for this place, and why this place um, you know has been so troubled and been so. Uh, you know, and had such a troubled history is in many ways a degree of um, of, of ignorance, frankly, um, uh, from the establishment classes in 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 London. You know, everyone was obsessed with what do we do to get the D P on side? How do we get the D P on side? What about the DUP? Um, ultimately, the D P represent, they are, I mean, they're, party will have, I'm sure they'll probably point out they have at the minute more voters than my party, but they don't represent the majority of people here. They represent, you know, between 20 and uh, 25% of voters uh, or thereabouts, and they aren't the only people who matter. So I think that is one uh, part of it. It's just trying to understand the complexity of this place, the different perspectives that exist, um, and actually the depth of the crisis we face in terms of public services um, which really as your, you know, the previous listener who, who sent you the voice note said, is beyond the point of collapse.
1: Like you say, the DUP represents, you know, 25, 30% of the electorate. But currently, our Northern Ireland secretary is talking only to the DUP, right? So we've got the yes. DUP conference coming up. I mean, I don't know. Is there a, a note of hope somewhere that maybe finally at that conference, there's rumours that they might say they're going to come back to the table? I mean, how are you feeling about this resolution?
3: I, I don't know, to be honest, Coco, and I'd be lying if I just, if I started speculating, I wouldn't be lying, but I would be simply be speculating. And, and I get that a lot on the stream. I'm sure lots of, I think politicians here from all parties do. It's a bit like asking people who they think is going to win the Grand National. It's And that kind of feeds into people's cynicism too, because it's become a kind of sport. What are the DEP going to, when are they going to move? Are they going to move? What are they thinking this, this day? It's not, um, and I think that breeds cynicism too. But I also think that if they don't move pretty quickly, if they don't go back, really before the end of this year, and ideally, you know, kind of before Halloween, I think people are going to start to ask more fundamental questions mm-hmm. about how this place is governed. So it, like, I don't think it's any occasion you hear people say, of, well, if we wait until the Labour government, I very much hope clearly we're Labour's sister party and we very much hope there's a Labour government next year. And and, and if our votes, you know, our votes might matter in terms of making a Labour government happen and and and, and, and we'll use them to that effect. But it clearly is not acceptable for us to wait until the next UK general election to have a devolved government in Northern Ireland. It can't be, that cannot be a a reasonable position.
1: So, Matthew, do you think that if they they don't come back to the table, do you think that will bring a united Ireland more into sharp focus?
3: Yes, but not immediately. I think all of these things are contributing to people asking questions about the future. Um, I mean, people ask, did Brexit make a united Ireland more likely? The answer is yes, like... Absolutely, like it is the single most transformational thing in terms of the, the constitutional debate on the island of Ireland, certainly since the Good Friday Agreement and before that probably even since partition, in my view. Um, it, it has been so, it's just altered things so fundamentally in that not just because the question of the border in a physical sense came back, came back into people's minds. And, you know, when I was growing up, there were still visible border infrastructure when you drove to Dublin, you know, checkpoints, that were ne- that were there for security reasons. Um, some of it were, were cust- was customs infrastructure. As the security situation improved, obviously the army checkpoints came away. But also when we, you know, because of the customs union and single market, the other um, uh, economic uh, border uh, w- w- was removed. So, but it isn't just because of that. It isn't just about the border reentering people's minds and debate. It's also about the UK becoming a less wealthy, influential country. So the UK is less able to... The UK is a less viable prospect. The UK is a less... For, for someone who is perhaps relatively constitutionally agnostic or moderately nationalist or moderately unionist, but could be persuaded of ec- the economic benefits of Irish unity, the UK is just a slightly less or considerably less uh, uh, stable prospect. Mm. And everything that, is com- that compounds that, including de- the destabilization of Northern Ireland via the absence of devolution, I think contributes to people asking the question, about what we would call a new Ireland. We shouldn't be thinking about it as a a short-term thing. It should be much more in the medium to long-term. But I do think it's becoming much more likely and many more people are engaging with that. Um, And if the, the DUP, I'm sure themselves, some of them, if they're honest with themselves, know that what they're doing at the minute is literally making a United Ireland more likely. And my own view is I want to see us move towards a new Ireland in a way that isn't because this place collapses in a heap. I want to see this place thrive. I want to see us improve our public services. I want to see us build a place that people, young people want to stay and live in and have economic opportunities. And I do still think that we will, uh, that will make the journey towards a new Ireland a, a more comfortable one and one in which the rest of the island, the Republic is, you know, feels in a position that unification can happen in a way that is a positive and natural and inspiring, frankly, process the way I don't want it to happen is that this place becomes an unviable mess. And lots of people very quickly say that um, that we, we need to think about Irish unity, you know, in a much more urgent way. It's the DUP, bluntly, who are forcing uh, lots of otherwise moderate people to ask that question. And um, they'd have to explain why they want to do that.
1: Wow. Oh, my God. Absolutely massive, monumental things Mm. happening in uh, Northern Ireland. Look, uh, we'll definitely be keeping an eye on it. Uh, Thank you so much, Matthew O'Toole, for your time, your patience, um, going to Stormont when it does appear to be empty from what I'm seeing on this video screen. (laughs) So uh, we appreciate you. So this is
3: just one room, but in the corridor outside, it's like the Overlook Motel from The Shining. Um, (laughs) It's very, very echoey. (laughs) Okay, well, Perhaps should not have used that analogy, but it's very echoey <laughs> and empty. Um, it's it, it's a very big remote building, even at the best of times. But hopefully there'll be people doing their jobs here soon.
1: I've noticed you're you're quite good on the references. You're doing. You're, this is very pod save the UK. There was a little Samuel Beckett flex earlier. We're talking about Channel Four shows offline. I love it. We respect it. Look
3: <laughs> Trying to slip in some pop culture. Northern Ireland politics can be very can be quite depressing, uh, particularly at the minute. So just trying to. <laughs> slide in the odd pop culture reference you, to... You fit to right in with us,
1: you really do. you have to come in when you're yeah. next in London, for sure. I but um, yes, I
3: definitely will. I'll call in and say hello. Nice to see you both. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks you so
1: much, Matthew. Thank you. Cheers,
3: Google. Thanks, Femi. Thanks a
1: lot. And that's it. That's it for this whole episode. So thank you so much thank for joining for me, me, Femi. Um, before we go, though, I did want to ask you some of... So just some advice, you know, you... I mean, you were talking earlier. Oh, it's so strange. In 2016, I had 40 followers. And now who I am like, what, pushing half a million, if not more.
2: Yeah, for 400. But yeah. Well, but, you
1: know, but it's fine. it's fine. Yeah. But like, that, that's a lot. That's a lot mm. of exposure. You're mm. obviously doing something that people, um, you know, that, that chimes with their feelings. But also that means it does attract the haters. Mm. Have you got any advice for anyone that also wants to just speak up, wants to make their voice heard?
2: So I would say as far as what to do, figure out what's missing from the conversation that you're the most passionate about. So for me, uh, it was Brexit and we needed somebody who... Understood the EU. I studied EU law and was willing to understand the other side of the argument. So why people voted for Brexit? What, how did austerity and regional inequality play into that? And challenge the politicians. So I started taking on Nigel Farage on his radio show, calling him up, figuring out. I listened to him every every day at 7 p.m. I knew all of his lines, and so it was easy to then take pick it apart. If your issue is climate change, for example, figure out what's broken about the conversation. What are the protesters not getting through to the general public? What's missing? As for the hate that comes from that, it's going to come. Um, But, and it it has been horrendous. Like it's, I've had so many death threats that my number was put on a special list with the Metropolitan Police so that if I call 999, it's automatically blue flashing lights. It won't be as bad as that for most people, um, but it, it can be quite emotional, especially if you are a woman, especially if you're from an ethnic minority, it will be a bit disgusting. But the way that I put it is giving up is harder. If we don't fight this, then the worst people will stay in charge. We have a government that the United Nations says is actively trying to normalize white supremacy. If we don't fight this, you will be living in that kind of society for the rest of your life. And so will your kids. If we don't fight this, it's much worse for everybody. And there is hope. Like, um, we know that the majority of the Labour Party is in favour of proportional representation, i.e. A, a voting system where everybody's vote counts equally. And given that in almost every single election since World War II, the majority of the people in the UK have voted for parties to the left of the Conservatives, we're a, we're a progressive voting country mm. on average. So there is huge scope for things to get much, much better permanently. So please have hope.
1: I think you've really hit the nail on the head there as well. You know, like we hope because there is no other option. Mm. We hope because we have to. We fight because we need to. Do you exactly. know what I mean? Yeah. This is not It's not a hobby. No. <laughs> We're
2: experiencing the sharpest fall in living standards ever recorded. According to the government's official experts, half of low-income families are skipping meals to feed their kids. Our beliefs are about equality because we think that's unacceptable and we need things to get better.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: It's also important to remember that you need to keep an eye on your mental health because after what I went through for those few years, uh, my mental health pretty much dropped to zero because you almost get this martyr complex where you don't really care about yourself. And so that's important. It's important to keep in mind that your life matters, your happiness matters, and you're not just a tool for the cause. You have to remember that it's important to stay happy and to find some way of stepping back when you need to.
1: Yeah, it's so fascinating. Like we, we often talk to activists on this show and it is so refreshing to hear the like, refreshing refreshing's the wrong word, actually. Like, that makes it sound like a lovely lime hit. It's actually quite <laughs> sad. But I guess I just mean that, like, it's a, an important counter note to how often people portray those who give a shit as, it, as though it's, like, fun for them or because <laughs> they like the clout. And maybe there are some outliers that are like that, but for most people that do it day in, day out, it's a slog,
2: man. It is, it is a slog. Uh, I couldn't imagine doing anything else because... Mm. Uh, (laughs) to use a Spider-Man quote uh, when you can do the things that I can and you don't when the bad things happen they happen because of you so we have to do this if we can do this but it's not fun all the time so if you need help find help
1: well those sound like wise words for me I think we can all agree on that Um, you can get in touch with us by emailing psuk at uk. we love hearing your voices so do send us a voice note on WhatsApp our number is 07514 644572 and internationally that's plus447514 644572 so that's the music coming in that means it's credit time Femi you're going to help me out right? yep right let's do it here we go Pod Save the UK is a reduced listening production for Crooked Media
2: Thanks to senior producer Musty Aziz and digital producer Alex Bishop with additional production support from Annie Keats-Thorpe.
1: Video editing was by Will Darkin and the music is by Vasilis Fotopoulos.
2: Thanks to our engineer David Dagahi.
1: The executive producers are Dan Jackson, Madeline Herringer and Anishka Sharma with additional support from Ari Schwartz.
2: Watch us on the Pod Save the World YouTube channel. Follow us on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. We're at Pod Save the UK, all one word.
1: And hit subscribe for new shows on Thursdays on Amazon, Spotify, or Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well done,
0: <laughs> The Living Room is where you make life's most beautiful memories.